0: And I'd have people tell me, Brett, I'm getting faster, and I know it's because of the hip thruster. And I'd say, well, why do you think that? We're doing so many different exercises. We're doing Bulgarian split squats. We're doing glute ham raise. We're doing every squat, deadlift, lunge, um, posterior chain, back extensions, Nordic ham curls. Why would you think that it's the hip thruster? Because I feel my glutes working like I do with that machine. 35% 35% boost in hip thrust strength and a 31% boost in, in squat strength from only hip thrusting, which makes the hip thrust like probably the best uh, accessory exercise for the squat ever. You have very strong glutes. Look at them; they're huge, big old quads, big hamstrings. You have very big muscles, but your range it's range specific strength. So, I'm like you do have strong glutes in the flex position, but they're weak in end range hip extension. So, do these every day, and'll your your strength will catapult, so I just said, "Do like four sets of five on you know body weight, and then increase it each week and then and I, I told him to do whatever for back extensions, maybe like two sets of ten or something, and increase it gradually one month of adding those in this guy's deadlift went up sixty pounds, so they're making the nation the world weaker as a strength coach. I strengthen people's mind, body, and spirit. I do not think about a general sending his soldiers off to the battlefield. Would you be like, okay, hey, Joel, I want you to head out there and kick some butt. um, But hey, watch out for your uh, your your rotator cuff weakness.
1: (laughs) That was just a few highlights from today's episode with Brett Contreras. Uh, ideas ranging all the way from hip thrusts and the relationship to speed to the common trend of inducing nocebo effects through athletic assessment protocols. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the Freelap Timing System, Gym Aware, Kbox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speedmat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The Freelap Timing System has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The KBOX and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 83 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have none other than the glute guy, Brett Contreras. Brett is one of the world's foremost experts not only on the glutes as he is so well known for but also hip extension training as well as anything to do with strength and human performance. When it comes to getting athletes faster Brett's knowledge is first priority info. I mean if you're talking about speed you're talking about the glutes and if you're talking about the glutes Brett has not only the knowledge the practical anecdotes and application but also a thorough knowledge of the research behind uh, any of those concepts and so today is really about a lot, of, a lot of the research. So last time on the podcast, Brett talked all things hip thrust, hamstrings, squat depth, and cueing. Uh, this time, uh, Brett's back, and we're going in depth on, or in light of, the recent research that's been out on the barbell hip thrust. So most of you, if you're listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with what that exercise is and how it works. Um, kind of, it flipped the script about 10 years ago uh, when it came out because it, it's a horizontally um, vectored exercise as opposed to squats and deadlifts and all those things. And, and I'd gotten, uh, I had had great personal anecdotes myself. That's, uh, much of what drew me to Brett in the first place, uh, in terms of, uh, both myself and my athletes getting faster or at least feel at the least feeling your glutes more in your sprint, uh, as a result of it. And so there was some recent research that came out, that in college populations that showed um, no transfer in actual speed or sprinting after a training period of hip thrusts. And this was kind of contradictory to some study uh, work that came out out of New Zealand a few years back with adolescents that showed that hip thrusts were better than front squats for the sake of getting faster, and there was speed improvement. So uh, this was an awesome one, and for a few reasons. One is Brett goes in-depth on 21 reasons as to why those hip thrusts may not have transferred to athletes getting faster, and so it's fascinating in and of itself just because of the link between the two and it's an exercise that a lot of people use for speed i mean, I've used it I've seen really good top level track coaches using it. It just makes sense and so within the twenty one reasons not you just learn a lot about. What really goes into this exercise and possible transfer? And and these are these again are reasons that why it might not have transferred because of study design. And if X may have been changed, maybe you would have seen some transfer here. And so it's so cool too because Brett, he's like, yeah, I admit I biased, I invented the exercise. So uh, you're he, you really you're seeing things full circle from somebody who knows the deal and has thought about it a lot. Uh, Also. Within the scope of the 21 reasons, not only for the hip thrust, but for any exercise and any research study, these would be great implications and ideas and things to look at. Because, and as Brett says later on the show, uh, there's studies that show squats and deadlifts transferring, and there's studies that show them not transferring. So, uh, if you're just interested in lifting and it's transfer to speed, which if you are a strength and conditioning professional or track coach, I would imagine you are, uh, these are great practical ideas on a very valuable concept in athletic performance uh brett also we not just the hip thrust but brett also goes into a few other ideas on uh, the specific range torque of hip extension as you heard in the the little anecdotes and highlights in the beginning which is a very cool story as well as the ideas on i guess you could call it issues on inducing the nocebo effect You've seen it all. Like your athlete, this athlete has weak glutes. <laughs> this athlete has weak this. And and how often are we saying these things when it really is just setting an athlete backwards or potentially setting an athlete backwards psychologically? And Brett really goes in detail on that. And it was just such a real cool discourse. And uh I really enjoyed this show. It's always awesome having Brett on. Just such a knowledgeable guy. Uh I'm just such a great guy to talk to. So let's get on to episode eighty-three of the Just Fly Performance Podcast with Brett Contreras. Brett, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here today.
0: Thanks for having me, Joel.
1: Yeah, so it's been a little while since you've been back on. uh, or It's been a while since you've been on, uh, I think, a year. And uh, I'd like to chat about what's been going on recently in the world of Brett Contreras.
0: So I wanted to move to San Diego for a long time, but I didn't want to move, you know, like, 20 miles out from the beach I wanted to live close to the beach so obviously it's more expensive if you want to do that so I saved up so I've been saving and saving and saving and then finally in September I pulled the trigger and moved so I sold my house and I moved here and bought a house right right by the beach um and then I opened up a gym and so the gym's a ready to go it's we have not officially opened, but i've been training people out of there for the last like month and uh god it's good to be back and training people again and i have all my favorite pieces of equipment in there and it's uh i've always trained people but never you know i since since i had my last gym which was in scottsdale 12 years ago i haven't trained the volume that i wanted so i'm just uh forgot how much i missed it working with people I, i you know, some people just love training; other people not so much. I just—it's uh, always—it's such an intrinsic reward helping helping others, and you uh, know, and and honing my craft. I feel like that's what I'm getting to get practice what I'm best at in life. Like that's my gift <laughs> is training people. So it's been great.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. Is the gym also close to the ocean?
0: It's on Garnett, uh, but it's it's about three quarters of a mile. Well, I'm. I'm Probably like 0. .6 miles away so from the beach. But yeah, it's it's on a popular street and yeah, relatively close by.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, there's something about working out like with that ocean air kind of in the, you know, going on. I, that's just an amazing experience. Sure. Uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, a lot of people have seen pictures of your new gym, videos, uh, and could you explain a little bit, I think this is almost a question of itself, but what are some of the main pieces that you have in your gym? Like, how is it laid out? What are some of the things that you're, so what are some cornerstones of Breckens-Hurris uh, Glute Lab?
0: Okay, so right when you walk in, I've got a scorcher there. Now, my scorcher isn't for sale. I have, like, there might be a couple in existence, but I have one of the only ones. We only made a few, and um, and I don't even know where, but we made these in 2006, I never sold them, but I used it at my last gym, which was called Lifts. That was in, in Gainey Ranch in Scottsdale. And I used that with all my clients for my the few years I was there. Everyone used it. And then uh, when I came to, you know, when I made the hip thruster, I made that because I'm like, this thing's a big, clunky thing. No one's going to buy it if it has to cost, like, you know, back then oh, I got that priced out. It, it would have cost 1300 bucks. Like no one's gonna to want to spend thirteen hundred. So I developed the hip thruster, which would be less, you know, less than half that much. Well, uh, it's just different. The hip thruster. I figured people would want to perform for my first invention. They want to do it similarly to how they do it already. The barbell hip thrust is popular off of a standard bench. So let's make it look like a bench. But it's only requires one piece, and then it has band pegs to hook a band in. Then you can do band hip thrusts as well. Well, the scorcher is like has a rounded pad, like it's a it's actually a glute ham developer pad. And then you're then then it's a big like leg press foot platform. So they're angled, but you, it's really different from the barbell hip thrust. You end up sinking your hips way down. It's a totally different feel. And I've been doing band hip thrust off of it, and I just love it. It's uh, You just get a big stretch, so you feel like your hamstring's down low, and then you feel the glutes at the top. And if you think about it, when you're really down low, your knee angle opens up. So that stretches the ham- hamstrings. You're in hip flexion, and you're in a little bit of knee flexion, but you, that opens up a lot. So you actually get a stretch on your hamstrings. And then as you start rising up, it's not like when you're on the ground. You're actually using your hamstrings to pull you up, because you get this deep stretch and you actually will use your hamstrings as knee flexors to pull your body up. And then you, the hips take the hips, hip extensors take over at the top. So it's like a glute and hamstring workout. So that's, I'm so happy to have that back in there. Haven't determined if I'm going to start making it again, but, uh, (laughs) I've got all these guys since people see it on Instagram, they're like, I want one of those, but again, it's going to cost more money. So I don't know if I'm going to make it or not, but I freaking love it, and I had, took it to a local welder and had them improve upon it based on what I've learned. I had a like a him change the band pegs around and stuff. And then if you go down that line, I I'm probably gonna leave some things out, but I got a I have a reverse hyper, the old you know the the Louis Simmons classical model. That's my favorite. I've got a back extension unit. Uh, sorry, a 45-degree hyper. And that I've been playing around with. Um, You know, I I have pulling, like Olympic pulling stands. I elevated the front end onto those, and it's super stable the way mine works. It's not like you could tip over anything. And then I made it a 70-degree hyper. It's a lot more hamstrings. You know, it's more like, you know, in between like a good morning. But I've been toying around with that too. And then I've got a lever squat. And it's not made anymore tough stuff used to make it that's my favorite lever squat, and I just love squatting off of it. but we've been doing Bulgarian split squats off of it. I put my hip thruster behind it, and then you you have you put your back foot on that, and then you actually do Bulgarian split squats with the lever machine, so it's very stable and uh people love it and then I've got my hip thruster. And then I have a Smith machine, which we mostly use for Smith machine hip thrusts. I just love Smith machine hip thrusts, so much so that I bought a Smith machine. Now, obviously, we can also do reverse lunges and, and uh, you know, like squats if we wanted, or seated military press, things like that. But we use it mostly for the Smith machine hip thrust. And then I've got a glute ham developer. I have a... Uh, Pit shark belt squat, and there's a lot of arguments about what's the best belt squat out there, but I love the pit shark one. Uh, It works really well. You can use bands with it if you want or just straight plates. I also figured out that you you can do a cool glute exercise just standing on the pit shark and doing anterior and posterior pelvic tilts. It's the only loaded posterior pelvic tilt exercise that I've been able to find where Yes, I can do a plank and hold an isometric glute squeeze, and try to post your pelvic tilt. But I'm, you're never really lifting weights with moving it dynamically to lift weight against resistance. When you wear that spud belt, that big old you know belt, the belt for the belt squat, and you have it draped down, if you just sit there and do anterior pelvic tilts, the chain pulls up. You're actually lifting it through like you know maybe like four inch range of motion. So if you've got like, you know, six plates on there or seven plates per side and then you start doing the pelvic tilting, you'll actually find it's a dynamic posterior pelvic tilt exercise and it gets the glutes burning like crazy and uh, and it, you're just practicing pelvic tilting. Now, some people might say, what's the point? I don't know. I don't But I know that if you have trouble posterior pelvic tilting, then that's going to help develop that. But it also, you know, you feel it work the glutes a lot. And you can also, in addition to doing belt squats off that, you can just stand and kind of stand on one leg, then the other, do like these lateral marching things that work the glute medias and upper glute max really well. Okay, and then we also have a, um, uh, uh, the, uh, it's um, it's a, it's one of those treadmills. It's not the, it's not the Woodway Curve, but it's I don't even know why I got it from Rogue. I can't remember. It's the Assault uh, Air Runner. I got one of those, and it's real smooth. I love it for sprinting off that. Interestingly, I, you can support some of your body weight on that while you sprint, and I start wondering if that has any applications for velocity, you know, increasing velocity and <laughs> um, things like that. I haven't heard any coaches talk about it, though. You can also stand kind of on top of the thing and just use and just perform, like, rapid hip extension or flick against the belt and just to perform like a more a, more of a specific stimulus to like sprinting, but I don't again I haven't used it enough to really determine if I'm gonna do any of that stuff with athletes. It's just you know when you get a new bunch of new equipment, you're like a kid in a candy shop for a while. But it's nice discovering new applications for equipment. And then so that's the one end of things. And then on the other end, um, I've got. Um, like a Cybex leg press. They call it a squat press. That's my favorite leg press. I've got a poor man's glute ham raise from Sorenex, which lets you do Nordic ham curls. And I always wanted one where I don't have to have someone hold my feet. You know, you don't have to have a partner. And so I like that a lot. And we've been toying around with that, doing band-assisted ones. Um, And uh, then I've got a seated hip abduction machine. Um, which I like for extra glute work. I like throwing something for abduction, loaded abduction in there. Of course, you can use bands and cables and ankle weights and stuff, but I like having that machine because you—it's a lot of things you can do off that. Sometimes I'll squeeze it for the person and overload the eccentric, perform some enhanced eccentrics off of there, things like that. But that's mainly for glute building, not so much for sport training. And then I've got a bunch of upper body stuff. I've got a a rogue bench station. I've got a incline press, a lat pull down. Um, I have a chest supported row. Um, And then I've got uh, all the, you know, I've got dumbbells up to 150s. I have all the specialty bars you could imagine, including that new uh, trap bar with the the back end is not on it, so you can do like re- reverse lunges and split squats off of it. I've got, um, yeah, all those types of safety club bars, but I really love all my cable attachments and my landmine attachments. Um, and, uh, you know, I can do so many different types of rows off the landmine for, for back training. I have a Viking press attachment for shoulder pressing, and I have a an adjustable landmine unit that I can put anywhere, Um on the rack, and I have a, a, you know, I have a rogue power rack with all the bells and whistles. I've got a deadlift platform. I've got uh, squat stands. And then I have a turf, like the side is lined with turf, like six feet of AstroTurf, or, or yeah, so from that, I, uh, you know, we push a sled, but then we also have all all the little gadgets that you collect over the years as a coach, you know, every little <laughs> Like every little gadget that's offered, I've got those too. All the little soft goods that you buy, you know. Uh, all the different bands and medicine balls and foam rollers and soft tissue tools and you know, it's, it's different attachments and different harnesses and things. So all in all, it's a really good – I also have some center mass bells from Sornex. Those are interesting. They can't figure it out like why – if the system center of mass is the same as the dumbbell, you'd think it would feel the exact same, but they have a unique feel to them. Um, like just doing like dumbbell bench press and things with those. Um, so I'm, I'm in heaven right now. Oh, I have a dip, dip stand. What else? I know I'm leaving some things out, but in general, I, I, I think of it like when I built this gym, I'm like, I want everything I want there as a lifter, you know, <laughs> what do all, what are all the things I want? But, Really, I there's things I wish I had more space. I wish I had a free motion, um, those uh, dual cro- uh, crossover, whatever you call them. The, you know, you move them. You can move the arms up and down and in and out, and I really wish I had that. I wish I had a lying leg curl machine. I wish I had, you know, certain other pieces of equipment. I, yeah, I also love the lateral raise machine for building delts, but I realize your audience is mostly sports performance, not just – I'm a meathead bodybuilder at heart, so I like train for building muscles. But anyway, I I I just have my piece of equipment that I love. But over the years, I've gone away from jarring exercises and just I like things that feel smooth and that just feel right for the body. So I've gone to great lengths to just get the right equipment that lets me that reduces the wear and tear on my body.
1: You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh yeah, no doubt. I think at the at the end of the day, and you know, we were talking about this a little bit before, even with just like uh, your thoughts on training athletes over the years is is finding the exercises that that feel right. You know, like <laughs> at the expense of, uh, I think maybe being a purist in many senses of the word. And it's fun too to. I agree. We had our gym kind of over redone uh, about a year and a half ago, I think uh at, at work for me and man it 's like as soon as a lot of new stuff goes in it 's just like, okay, what can I do with this? What can I do with this it's just it is so much fun and uh I like hearing by the way too about um that that taking the forty five degree hyper up to seventy i'm like, man, I want to try that now and uh and the scorcher how many scorchers are even out there like how many people have one of those things
0: I think I know we made like three back in the day, and I don't even know if the places who I gave them to still have them. So I don't know. I'm curious. I think I gave one to uh, uh, Dave Tate from Elite FTS, and maybe he still has his. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't even know. But I freaking love it. And I redid the, you know, on my new hip thruster. So I had the hip thruster 1.0, which was red, and the band pegs came straight out. And that I did that because that's all that that's like what you do with squat stands and bench press. The the band pegs come straight out, but if you're trying to put the belt across you, so that works well on like the you know, like if you think of a deadlift platform, when you buy a deadlift platform, the 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 pegs are parallel, so your bands fit loop right over them, and they're not stretched in a weird way. So it, so that's what I did. I made these T handles on the hip thruster 2.0. Well, that's what I went and did on the Scorcher. So what's nice about the Scorcher also is that um, you start way higher up, but the band pegs are way low. So you're still pre-stretched at the bottom with the bands. And then as you get higher up, so it's like with the hip thruster, you start off really low tension and end up super high tension. This you start off, you know, not quite as low. So you always have some tension on the hips and then, you move the hips through such a greater range of motion off that. You can just feel it. But you, you feel it. I don't know how much range is different, but you just, how much you feel. You end up feeling way more. So, um, but uh, yeah, we've been having a blast coming up with new things. And I, sometimes I feel like MacGyver in there. You give me enough tools and I can figure out a solution for anything.
1: Oh, yeah. I like the, yeah, the Scorcher makes sense. Like the you're loading the movement from a, a position where the muscles are at longer lengths like the hamstrings and you already have the load there like that's a that's a, a cool thought and i wonder if the other one's like maybe it's in the smithsonian somewhere it's like someone's or someone's like i got the third one
0: that's so you know when i came up with my theories on how the hip thrust would transfer well to sprinting that was all at my last gym list and i'd have people tell me brett I'm getting faster and I know it's because of the hip thruster. And I'd say, well, why do you think that? We're doing so many different exercises. We're doing Bulgarian split squats. We're doing glute ham raise. We're doing every squat, deadlift, lunge, um, posterior chain, back extensions, Nordic ham curls. Why would you think that it's the hip thruster? They'd say, because I feel my glutes working like I do with that machine. That's what they'd say to me. So that's when I started, I remember like having a hard time sleeping at night because I'd be like, why wouldn't they say this about squats? Why are they saying this about hip thrusts? Well, the hip thrust is loaded horizontally. The squat is loaded vertically. That changes the strength curve at the hips. It changes the, and I, I I didn't know how to word it back then. I wasn't a biomechanist. All I was looking for was the hip extension torque angle curve. But uh, anyway, the, and then I, I just hypothesized that this is more similar to the the you know what's what's needed for sprinting because sprinting you need more end range strength than what's delivered in a squat. And then my first paper came out my my for my thesis my first journal article that was published showed that hip thrust transferred better to acceleration than front squats, but it was in adolescent male rugby players. And a lot of coaches were like, you know, why didn't he do the back squat? Well, the reason why is because we went through like 20 coaches till we finally found someone who would work with us. I mean, think about it how hard it is to go up to a coach and say, hey, will you just do one exercise with your athletes for six weeks? One lower body movement, that's it. And none others because that'll confound, get <laughs> to be a confounder. It's really hard. Most coaches will say, no, I'm not willing to do that. So we found a guy and then he said, you know, I, I'm more comfortable with front squats uh you know i just i've been coaching you know programming these for many years and i'd rather my guys do front squats so you don't already when you have that you say okay you work with the coach you don't say no has to be back squats because then i'd never gotten the study done but i think the same results would have been seen if we did high bar or low bar or the parallel or deep i think the same results would have been seen but that Based on what I know about squatting, but I know people think that low bar is so much more hip dominant than high bar. It's not, but um, they, they, you feel a bigger stretch on your hamstrings. You feel a greater lean. Anyway, um, the, the, uh, the then two studies came out later showing no transfer to s- sprints from hip thrusts. Ironically, one of the studies showed a 31% boost in in a sorry thirty five percent boost in hip thrust strength and a thirty one percent boost in in squat strength from only hip thrusting, which makes the hip thrust like probably the best uh, accessory exercise for the squat ever i mean it, they almost increase their squat strength as much as their hip thrust strength without even squatting it was like eight weeks of hip thrusting, and then that 's what I found in one of my my studies with um a twin case study, I found, you know, this this client uh, of mine, she, she squatted 95 pounds before the protocol, hip thrusted three times a week for six weeks, raised her hip thrust from like 200 to 335 pounds. So put 135 pounds on her hip thrust in six weeks, but she also raised her squat from 95 to 135. So put 40 pounds on her squat, having never squatted, she didn't even do squats in the warm-up. I didn't have him do she didn't squat the whole six weeks. She didn't even do a bodyweight squat. And uh and it was also better form. Like her 95 pound was kind of knee valgus, dodgy, like weird looking. And then her 135 was nice and clean, the knees stayed out, she sat back a little more, she didn't waver, the hips didn't shoot up at all. It was like a really clean looking squat. So I've seen it happen like that firsthand, but it was nice to see in a study. But I think the barbell hip dust off the ground transfers better to squatting because it's really high quad activation, but not, not as much hamstring activity as what you see in the, in the scorcher. So how do you mimic the scorcher if you don't have one? Well, you can elevate both the the, the shoulders and the legs, but it's hard to do barbell with that. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do single leg like that and easy to do bands, but not barbell. But I think that would transfer better to sprinting.
1: Yeah, you'd have to, also, you'd have to get like two people to throw a barbell like up on – it would be pretty darn awkward to, to figure that one out. That's what we
0: did at lifts. We always had two trainers and what we'd do is they'd stand on either side of the scorcher, deadlift the bar up, on both one stand on each side. The client would slide under it, get their feet up. We'd drop it in their laps. They'd do their set, then we'd pick it up for them, they'd slide out, and we'd set it down. So it's a very, demand, like a, <laughs> yeah. like a very demanding situation there. You're not always going to have two trainers per athlete, but we did it at my gym lifts because we always had two trainers on the floor, and so uh, it was no problem, but it's not a good long-term solution. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to to sidetrack you there as well. I that that is interesting though. Like, and, and that kind of led me to uh, the first question. You already covered it really a little bit, but like uh, the idea on some of the conflicting research. So the the study that you did with the adolescent athletes and the hip thrusts and the front squat, and and I saw that, and I was like, oh, this is awesome, and it makes sense with a lot of what I've seen with my experience with track and field athletes, who would say the same thing as you said. Your clients would say, like, I feel. Uh, like I feel my glutes more when I run, like this is a very, from a a qualitative perspective, I was getting these things and I'm like, yeah, I do think this is certainly helping. And I totally can see that study. And then there was the work that came out recently with the more like the college level, I believe. And I'm sure you obviously know all the details, uh, much better than I do, but I believe it's what college level athletes got stronger, but they're, Sprint speed didn't get better after using a barbell hip thrust for that period of time. So, uh, what's your and you wrote a great article on it, by the way. That was uh, just such a great write up that you did. But what are your what are your general thoughts on that?
0: So you're in luck. I just pulled it up while you were asking that. Uh, I wrote a blog. I have a I have like a million half written blog posts. There's like notes and I, and I never really finish them. I never finish anything anymore. But uh, I have this blog post that says. Why hip thrust didn't increase speed? And I was going to say, why if you get way stronger at something, how could it not increase speed? So I have 20 reasons why here, so I'll go through them. <laughs> one is the motor pattern. Uh, it's just a, such a different motor pattern, barbell hip thrust compared to sprinting. I don't believe that's the case, but that could be one. Number two, it's supine. You're laying on the ground, you're not standing. I don't believe that's it, but a lot of coaches say that. I don't agree one would be that it's single joint it's an isolation movement i don't agree with that i don't like that terminology in the first place because um like by that definition like a well it's just it's just too convenient think about an rdl the knees do move in an rdl they move a little bit you know you get some knee flexion but people say an rdl is a single joint no it's not they and same with the hip thrust. They'll say, well, that's single joint. It's just hip flexion and extension. Not really. The ankles move, the knees move, the hips move, the pelvis and spine move too, you know? <laughs> and your your head and neck move. If you keep your chin tucked, it'll go from more to less cervical, you know, whatever, head, forward head, whatever, cervical flexion and like the head and neck, whatever that's called. I'm thinking back to the anatomy days, like re re. re. <laughs> Protraction—I don't even know what it would be—but anyway, um, you'll get ankle when you, you know, when you're at the bottom, you're more plantar flexed. When you're at the top, you're more dorsiflexed. You get the knee angle opens up and closes a little bit, not much, but you know. And when we say, "Oh well, the neutral spine," you never really keep a neutral spine. I've got like 15 studies. Every study ever looking at anything with weight training or functional like lifting like stoop lifting or squat lifting or anything like athletic whether it's sprinting jumping running the spine always moves we need to quit saying neutral well we can keep saying as long as we know because i still say it try to keep a neutral spine or but it always moves the second you put a barbell on your back you're no longer in neutral you can't be picture like just if you stand up straight and then imagine having a bar on your back You would have to lean a little bit and round a little bit and like the upper back a little bit, things like that. You wouldn't just stay as arched and and the the different segments move. The different motion segments will move a little bit. But we all know what we mean. We mean try to stay in neutral as much as possible and not just let your spine go crazy. So there's a neutral zone we should be aiming for, this zone that keeps you safe. But uh, anyway, I don't like that terminology because you could say like, you know you could say an up well like an upright row well a face pull you know you're having a lot of different you know the the shoulders the elbows, the wrists that all move, so that's a compound lift, the face pulls easy as hell, you know <laughs> so uh you could even say a supinating dumbbell curl you're you're getting wrist and elbow movement, you know, and that's a but so that's compound. But then single joint, you could say a stiff-leg deadlift is single joint, even though it's not <laughs> it's not just the hips moving, but I don't like that terminology. But that could be one reason, but I don't agree with it. Uh the fourth reason could be a shortened glute position. Like the glutes are it work the hip thrust works the glutes when they're shortest. And in sports, most popular exercise work the muscles when they're at their longest lengths, like RDLs and squats. Uh don't quite agree with that number five the knees stay bent throughout the whole movement these are kind of expounding on on number one the motor pattern is different like the bent knees throughout the lift you know in sports you don't keep the knees bent but that causes you to work more glutes um number six is the range of motion your hips move through a more full range of motion when you sprint the hip thrust is more of a limited exercise i don't agree with any of these so far uh Number seven is the lack of eccentric, uh, lack of an eccentric component. When I did my PhD, I found that people don't use their glutes much on the way down. You can. You could have them reverse the weight in midair and not touch down. But if you let them touch down, they do what they do with a deadlift, where you lift the weight up and then you just slightly control it on the way down. So what we found was with a squat, people used like 90% of their force on the way down compared to the on the way up. You only see a 10% drop off in force when you when you take when you uh when you take inertia out of it and it's you're still using like 90% of the force on the way down compared to on the way up whereas with hip thrust it's like 33%. I mean, you only use 30 percent of what you use concentrically on the way down. You you let gravity lower it for you. So that could be the case. Um eighth reason fascicle length. Maybe it doesn't maybe you need the length and fascicles a little bit when you train. Uh like that That you need that adaptation and that makes your muscles contract faster. Um that could be a reason. I don't agree. Number nine, quad mass has been shown like the the, the vasties are highly activated in the hip thrust. People think the hip thrust is a is a glute isolation movement. No it's not. The quads Quad activation is through the roof. And if you build quad muscle, theoretically that can interfere with your moment of inertia and make you less uh, well adapted for sprinting. So anything that works the vasties that well could make you a worse sprinter theoretically. And there's some some research on sprinters showing they have less quad mass and more uh, hamstring and glute mass. But I don't think that's it. Number 10... The people in the studies are using poor technique. They're not doing the hip thrust properly. Well, I found one of the researchers on Instagram. Um, and, well, I, I was tagged in it. I just recognized the name. I'm like, oh, that's one of the researchers. And they showed their one rep max testing for hip thrust And it was terrible. Well, what am I going to do? Like, call them out? But it could be that they weren't using that good of technique. But still, even if you don't use really good technique with hip thrusts, Let's say you arch too much and, you know, you're in, like, spinal extension, anterior pelvic tilt. Well, still, then you're going to be working more erectors and hamstrings, and I think all the muscles are important for sprints, so I don't think that would make it not transfer at all, but maybe it's some of the reason. No, number 11, excessive hip thrust volume and loading. And uh, that, that I do think so, and I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I'll elaborate on that. Number 12, an overall reduction in volume and loading. If you're saying you can't do any other exercise in these athletes, say they're athletes and they're used to doing more, and now you're saying just hip thrust, they've actually reduced their training volume a lot and they're not allowed to run. Okay, so maybe they were running and then they stopped running because they're told don't do any activity. Number 13 is there's no tapering and no fatigue. Uh, I remember my buddy Carlo... Buzzicelli, who trains Olympic athletes, he emailed me, and he's like, so this study hammered them for eight straight weeks or, and then tested them right afterwards? Of course they didn't see any sprint improvements. They're fatigued. You always taper with athletes, and they didn't taper, so it's due to fatigue. It's being masked by fatigue. Number 14, and I think this is a huge reason, is the slow speed and the slow tempo of the movement. So when you publish studies, you've got to define the tempo. Maybe it's a one-second concentric, one-second eccentric or something, you know. But they'll do, in this study, I think I saw like a one-second concentric, one-second pause, two-second eccentric. That is so slow. That's four seconds per rep. I mean, a lot of my girls, well, and I know this because of Instagram. Because remember back before they had a minute, they were 20-second clips? Well, some of my girls could could fit like 18 reps in those 20 seconds because they go so fast. Typical hip thrust in the real world in the gym aren't one second up, one second pause, one two seconds down, two second eccentric, especially. So uh, everyone lifts differently. People have different tempos, but the the ones using this study are very slow. If you sped them up, maybe you see better results. Um, Number fifteen, the pause at the top. You know, maybe if you didn't pause at the top, it makes it slower. It doesn't make it. You don't. You aren't. You know. You aren't exploding. Uh, number 16 insufficient hip range of motion and hamstring stretch i think that's a big issue you know with the barbell hip thrust you go down to the bottom uh there, this was actually on a study uh one of the one that you that the the emg study that looked at deadlifts and trap bar deadlifts the bottom of the hip thrust the hamstring emg activity is rock bottom you have no no, no hamstring activity or no stretch on the hammies and the hammies are are likely even more important than the glutes for sprinting they're probably the they're arguably the most important muscle for sprinting speed and that's been shown in j v Morin's research research recently. Hammies seem to be the most important I think most coaches would agree with that too so let's make the hip thrust more hamstring uh, more hamstring dominant exercise by elevating the feet and and, and elevating the hips uh, the shoulders and the feet and getting a big stretch on them. But that's hard to do if you don't have a scorcher okay uh we also have uh, a need for a power phase conversion some sort of so yeah you've got the strength now you need to convert to power you need to have like a two-week block in there where you do explosive uh which i don't necessarily agree with number 18 no placebo effect from the guy. so this is a funny one i thought about maybe maybe you know, people in my gym, they're like, "Oh, he's going to get me faster," and then they do. We, <laughs> this has been a. There's a pain researcher when some some other some of his colleagues have said, "You're not allowed to do, be involved in the study because they know who you are." Sometimes I wonder if I get good results just because of my popularity. You know, it's a it's a. I'm going to try harder. It's like an observer of a, 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 a teacher effect. Like, they're going to get better results just because. They know they're training with a glute guy. They believe in it more. They have more buy-in. Um, but I didn't train the people from my group, but they might have been told that it was my study and maybe they, maybe they, maybe it was some placebo. I don't believe that was it, though. Number 19, maybe the glutes aren't the speed limiters. Maybe they're not the speed muscles. Maybe we need to focus. Maybe it's hamstrings and the hip thrust will never be the best, you know, a great exercise for improving speed. And number 20 is, I kind of alluded to, a reduction in running volume. Maybe they were running and they're told during the study, I want you to abstain from any running. And if they would have just kept up their normal running volume, they would have actually increased speed. So those are 20 different reasons. Obviously, you can see when I, when I, <laughs> when I sit down and start thinking, I can think of all these different reasons. But basically, I think it's a combination. I wonder if you... Instead of doing, if you did three things, instead of using the barbell hip thrust, you used a, like a, a, like a band, like a, you used a, like a scorcher type hip thrust where the feet are elevated and the shoulders, so the hips, the hips sink way down. And I wish people could see the scorcher. I I use, I showed on my Instagram channel, you're sinking way down and I hadn't done it in years and I used it and I'm like, wow. I forgot how deep you go with it. So you're using way more hip range of motion, a bigger stretch on the hammies. And then you're going explosive. So we use bands, so you're doing explosive reps, but you could also use barbell. But I think barbell would be hard because you'd pinch, you get deep into hip flexion, then you have no space for the, the barbell in between your hips, you know, like in between the, your belly and the thigh, the weight would get pinched. So barbells might be tough there. Uh, but you could still you you could use them on women, just people with guts it may may be problematic. But anyway, if you instead of used all the loading protocols that I've seen in the studies are like five by five with eighty five percent of one rep max. Um, so when, remember when I said I'm gonna allude to this in a minute. It made me start thinking about how we do how we perform studies in general. So think about this. All right, Joel, I'm gonna have you participate in this eight week study. You've never performed heavy, you know, or like you've never done heavy hip thrusts before, or you've never done this exercise. You never really done deadlifts correctly before. But I'm gonna one rep max you today. I'm gonna to, day one. I'm working you up to one rep max because I want to post test you in the end and see if you gain deadlift strength or whatever, hip thrust strength or squat strength. So on day one, you're not even used to maxing out, and I max you out, and then. That's typically like, say, on a, you know, maybe it's on a Thursday or something. And then the next Monday, you're thrown into this program. And uh, day one of the training study now, so you already maxed out your fatigue from the week before. And then we have you doing five sets of five with 85% of one rep max. That's brutal. But then I'm progressively overloading you for six or eight straight weeks or whatever the study duration is. And you're in, like, survival mode the whole time, like, because you're you're like getting this heavy heavy loading and you know you're trying to go up and maybe your form degrades and you know you sure you can say well a good coach will prevent all that and have the just the right loading but when you're in the gym the way I teach my clients I never do that I don't take newbies someone walks in to my gym for the first time I don't max them out I say you know I'll give you this exercise I stop them far shy of failure I stop them the second form starts that you rode and i i don't i get i might pyramid them or i might give them three sets of higher reps but maybe i take a month to get them into sets of five or really heavy weight you know they're never in this like like where they're fearing this exercise because they've only all only gone heavy and they never really they never went through that you know when i first teach them like you feel the glutes working, good. Okay, you know, t- teach them really good form with light weight and get them to get develop that mind-muscle connection or whatever you want to call it and then slowly, gradually add load and progress. You know, That's what we do as, if you're a good trainer, a good coach, that's how you train people. So a study can't mimic that. It, it, we don't have the time. A study can't, and you're also not controlling variables. We have freedom as trainers. We can switch up on the fly. This isn't looking good. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to add, you know, throw an audible in the works here and change something up based on what I'm perceiving from their, 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 you know, the biofeedback they're giving me or whatever. Um, so yeah, studies can't really mimic what we do as trainers and coaches, but what's the alternative? Just rely on coaches anecdotes because we tend to be wrong a lot and attribute things, you know, so you, you need research, but you also need trainers, Speaking out too. You need both. You need anecdotes. You need, you need, you need acute studies. You need longitudinal studies. You need you come up with theories. You need longitudinal studies to test those. But yeah, it's like they're thrown into this stressful environment from day one, and they never get a chance. There's no there's no tapering period. You don't say we train them for eight weeks and then we had a two week taper. um It's usually like after the eight weeks, we post tested them on powerful things. So, yeah, sometimes they don't see improvements because they're fatigued. Anyway, I think if you did three things, made it more like a Scorcher-style hip thrust, used lighter loads and made it more dynamic, more of a speed, you know, like like 60% of one rep max for three sets of six or something, and maybe used bands or chains for accommodating resistance in addition to the barbell, and then also included a tapering... Lower lower the volume and you know make it more speedy or whatever, then I think they would see speed improvements. But again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm too. I'm obviously biased because I invented the damn exercise. I, you have to realize that about people. Like, look at their. But I'm gonna. I'm I'm li- I'm probably gonna. If someone's like, oh my god, I had, I had cancer and then I got rid of cancer on my own and I was doing hip thrusts, I'm gonna be like, oh my god, hip thrust cure cancer, <laughs> like because I invented it. I'm biased. So. That's why you need other researchers coming in. And uh, I remember reading on Facebook, someone wrote, so let me get this straight. When Contreras does a study, it thrusts work. When he's not involved, it don't work. And I'm like, oh, man. I talked to my, my professor, John Cronin, about this. I was blinded from the first study. But it could be, um, oh, I didn't include this. This is the 21st reason. It could be that it works well with adolescents and not well with older populations. So, Maybe it's a dev- developmental thing. So this is why we always say don't get too excited over one study. I will tell you, Joel, it's hard for me because if I'm trying to be the best scientist possible, then I'm way more scientific, way more about the methods, and here's what you can and cannot conclude. This was one study on adolescence on, done on one exercise with one loading protocol. You know, this doesn't mimic True training programs that coaches use where you use a variety of exercises. This doesn't – you can't make claims about females or older lifters or – but I'm also a blogger and a popular figure, uh, and people want me – they want to hear my opinion on things, and they want me to take leaps with not just be like, you know, more research is needed, and uh, this might mean that this – this could mean this. They want to hear what I have to say, and so – also, I get, you know, people will make infographics and things like that. And I'm going to repost those. I'm going to retweet those. You know, I, I, that's what I did. And then I felt bad when two studies came out showing it doesn't transfer to speed. My guess is it'll be like the pendulum. We'll see, you know, there's a study where where a group did squats and deadlifts, squats and RDLs, and there was no speed improvement. So and then there's a lot of studies showing they do. Uh, there's a meta-analysis showing they do improve sprinting speed. So we need to have like 50 studies on hip thrusts. Hopefully ones keep pouring in over the years and we can learn more. But in the meantime, I'm going to use hip thrust with my athletes. It's just that I'm not going to be obsessed with five by five and just getting them stronger to one or max. I'm going to use dynamic effort. I'm going to use different, different, just a variety of different – So. This way, you're not crushing them with heavy lifting all the time, but getting them a variety of different thrusting, bridging patterns, strengthening and range hip extension, but also doing a variety of flexed range stuff that like squats, deadlifts, lunges, Bulgarian split squats, step ups, pistols, skater squats. You know, you name it. Uh, uh, all these different single leg and double leg exercises that get you strong in a flexed range and ones that get you strong in an extended range along with lateral and rotational exercises to round it out. And that's what when people will bash an exercise. And I'm like, all right, what, what are you going to do then? You have an hour with these clients. And what are you going to do with them? Because I bet you military press doesn't transfer well to sprinting either. But we're going to train the upper body a little bit, you know. I bet you chin-ups and rows don't transfer that well to agility and things like that, even though people will say, well, chin-ups can help you get faster because you pull the arm back faster, but... I doubt it. I bet you if you did a training study. But we are strength and conditioning professionals. We do well. We are trying to build a strong unit, a well-balanced body, a well-balanced unit. And what I can say from experience is that hip thrusts keep people, if you do them correctly, keeps people in better overall shape. Meaning they're not going to have as many. I can't tell you how many. I've gotten probably 5,000 emails in 10 years from people, I mean, if I put up something today on, on Instagram or Facebook that said, hey, how many of you felt better after you started doing hip thrusts? How many of your low back, you had low back pain that almost vanished? I would get like, you'd get a thousand people who responded on that, who said, me, I used to have back pain. I started doing your glute stuff and it went away. And then the pain people would all say, well, biomechanics don't really matter. That's all placebo effect from the glute guy. And it's, a." Uh, you know, it actually does a bad thing. And it's like, come on, these guys don't have, uh, I don't know. I did some of the pain guys I get annoyed with because there's these staunch pain scientists that rightfully point out that it's not all about biomechanics, but you know, I just disagree with some of what they say. I think that the biomechanics matters more when you have high, high performance, heavy, heavy powerlifting, explosive sprinting and jumping and landing and cutting and, then biomechanics matters more for, for injuries and for pain, in my opinion. But I do get fascinated by the science of it all, and I think you need to be – if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you if you're a phys- – and I think physical therapists and chiropractors and manual therapists do – they do harm because their profession forces them to dole out all these nocebo effects. I and mean, Think about it. Every massage therapist you go to is going to say, oh, Oh my God, I'm feeling, I'm massaging you right now. Your back muscles are so tight or you have such tight hip flexors. Your adductors are so tight. You need to be coming back for me for more. You're a ticking time bomb. And then a chiropractor will tell you, oh, you're all out of whack. I need to be manipulating you and cracking you and pushing on bones. And that's the solution to all of your ills. And then the physical therapist might say, oh my God, you are so out of balance. You have like this leg length discrepancy and pelvic torsion and, uh, your, glu- your gluteal amnesia and anterior pelvic tilt and kyphosis and your muscles aren't fighting properly you're typically the multifidus and the transverse abdominis and whatever the muscle of the day is and they tell people you know all the ways that they can be out of whack and it it makes people they don't know this i i probably work with more people than almost anyone in the world I've got my Strong by Brett with 400 plus members. I've got my personalized programming with 200 plus members. I've got all the people who come to my gym, all the people I work out with, uh, it's, and, and all the people I interact with. I've got almost 300,000 followers on Instagram right now, and I get like 300 DMs a day. I don't get to all of them, but I interact with probably arguably more people than anyone in the freaking world right now, and I can tell with absolute certainty. And the physios, they don't know this. The Kairos, they don't know this. They don't know what they're doing because every client who comes to me comes to me and they tell me, hey, Brett, uh, just want to let you know before we get started, I have this and they list this laundry list of things wrong with them and and I start training them and I'm like, you're fine. You are actually perfectly fine. I had one guy, and this is the funniest story. I know you haven't asked me a question in like 10 minutes, but I just keep rambling, but <laughs> that's, all good. Go. that's all good. I'll <laughs> keep going. Yeah, so this study's hilarious. Or this study, this story is hilarious. This guy, he's apparently one of the richest dudes in Canada. He owns like twenty car dealerships or something, or fifty car dealerships. And he scheduled an appointment with me the year prior. And he flaked. So he wants to come, wants me to check him out, and I don't. I don't want to get flaked on again. So I said no. I don't. No. No deal. So the guy's pretty insistent. My assistant comes back to me and says, Hey Brett, he's really adamant that he gets a training session with you. He says he has a big glute imbalance and he thinks you can fix him. Name your price. And I said, not interested. She comes back. He's offering a thousand dollars for one session. Not interested. Okay, Brett, he came back with an offer for $3,500 for one hour. So I said, okay, (laughs) deal. But he's got to put the money in my PayPal up front. So he paid $3,500 for one hour. And, uh, and he was dead set that he had a glute imbalance. So, I mean, I, I'm like, I tested him and I'm like, okay, your goblet squats, your 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 deadlifts, your goblet squats, your hip thrusts, your bridges, you're all symmetrical with those. I'm feeling your glutes. They are the same exact size, they're the same density. When you contract them, they I can feel, they feel the same shape, the same hardness feels like they activate to the same degree. You're, symmet- you're, you're, you're symmetrical with single leg exercises. Your form looks the same. Like by everything I can think of without having advanced biomechanical tools, your glutes are in perfect balance. You have no glute imbalance to speak of. You don't even need to be concerned about that. Yes, you might feel one glute working harder than the other, but that's just sensory and it's not really depicting an accurate p- picture here. And it was so hard for him to believe that because I think he had been riding that. And I'm like, it's time for you to get stronger. You just need to gain strength and you'll achieve your goals. But this is everyone who comes to me. I'd say nine out of ten people come to me and they're like, I have this, this, and this. And then I test them and they don't. I mean to the point where people say I have leg length discrepancy. I lay them down and I say, okay, let's see. And then their legs line up perfectly. And I go, look, your legs are exactly aligned with each other. No, you can tell when I stand. It's like a three-inch difference. And I'm like, no, it wouldn't be. I'm stretching your legs out and I'm putting down. It would be, One would be three inches longer than the other. Your legs are the same size, and they don't want to believe it because they like to have a crutch. Human beings like to get sympathy. We like to have a crutch. We like to have excuses. So they're making the nation, the world, weaker. As a strength coach, I strengthen people's mind, body, and spirit. I do not you know, think about a general sending his soldiers off to the battlefield. Would you be like, okay, hey Joel, I want you to head out there and kick some butt, um, but hey, watch out for your uh, your your rotator cuff weakness. <laughs> you know, chances are you're gonna, you know, and, and you know your anterior pelvic tilt's gonna get the best of you. You're, I know your low back is gonna fatigue while you're out there on the battlefield. No, you don't talk talk about their weaknesses. You talk about their strength. You're going, you know. General, General Contreras, my shoulder, and I'm like, Joel, you're gonna get out there and you know, I'm not saying throw caution to the wind as a strength coach and ignore that when they're in pain, but I'm saying I will empower you. And the people that I train, you know, they come to me and I've all these I have all these replies ready for them. They're like, I have anterior pelvic tilt, and I go, Oh, I can't tell, but even if you do, a lot of sprinters have anterior pelvic tilt and they're the most powerful people in the world, so that's awesome. You know, I say that to them. Or they'll say my glutes don't activate, so they'll be standing, and I'll put my hands on their butt, and I'll go squeeze them. Oh, they wow! Actually, that's impressive. I thought you said they don't activate. They actually activate pretty good, but we'll see. Because I don't want to embarrass, like I don't want to make them feel stupid. But I'll, I just they learn real quickly. It's not even worth trying to tell this guy an excuse, because uh, and even if they say I have scoliosis, I'll be like, you know, Lamar Gant had scoliosis. He's arguably the best deadlifter on the planet ever of all time. And it was actually an advantage for him. That doesn't mean if they're like, ow, my back's hurting, I'm going to push them through it. But let's see. Maybe they can be just fine. And ch- you know, chances are when they train with me, I'm going to find the right exercises for them and get them strong as heck. And get them to never rely on those excuses because I want them being confident. I want to instill confidence and improve self-esteem and get them to think that they are powerful. The human body is amazingly powerful. It's resilient. I want them knowing that. So I would like strength and conditioning practitioners to never use the word dysfunctional. I think the word dysfunctional is just a term that like people made to feel superior to one another. Like, oh, Joel, you're dysfunctional. You have shoulder dysfunction. You have knee dysfunction. Like, First of all, I lift with the strongest dudes ever, and everyone's a little bit jacked up. I've never known a lifter that everything's fine. We're always working around some stuff. That doesn't mean we're dysfunctional. It means you push the envelope too hard. Think of all the uh, the seasoned athletes you know. They're not dysfunctional. They push the envelope. You know, their knees are dodgy because of, like, every rugby player has a shoulder or something, a hip or whatever. Every hockey player, like, you, you know what I'm saying. The athletes and lifters, we get beat up. We aren't, we're, it's usually not because of dysfunction. It's because of your, your training was relentless. Didn't allow you to recover between things, and it added up over time. But as I watch these coaches now that are, are trainers have these blogs, and they'll say, "This is leads to dysfunctional movement patterns, and this leads, don't do this because this makes you dysfunctional." And I'm like, "What? You that's a that's not that's not that make that's not bettering the world. That's making people fear. That's that's uh, fear tactics. You know, it's fear mongering, and it's not doing any good." I don't subscribe to that as a strength coach. I, I don't give them those crutches. I take away their crutches and show them they're fine. So if you see people saying the word dysfunction, chances are they're a, they're a, a, a they're a, a charlatan. They're just trying to get people to go, oh, okay, I'm, I'm scared. I'm, i I better listen to this guy because I'm scared now. They're using fear, you know, scare tactics, and I, I hate it. I can't stand that aspect of our industry. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster.
1: Yeah, I uh, yeah that last point uh, that's something I've been learning a little bit in the last couple of years as well. I think I just made a mention of this in um, uh, ten like aspects of great coaches articles article that I just wrote. Is like I've been in enough assessment like 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 athlete assessment and correction based systems in the last three years, four years that I could take you know Olympic athletes I work with and find plenty of things quote-unquote wrong with them but i but i've i've realized that like before i tell an athlete anything like like the weight of telling somebody something is wrong with you is is way more than i think a lot of us are ready to unless you really really know exactly what it is and exactly how to fix it it's just not it's just not worth it like the human machine is so amazing in in doing what it does
0: well it does it's in and and your anatomy with your skeletal structure and your, you know, your, your muscles and and tendons. And obviously you're going to have some, if you exercise a lot and lift a lot, you're going to have some of some, you're going to have more wear and tear on certain places than others based on your anatomy and where you, where you load your body more and your soft tissue characteristics and and things like that. So um, I would love to take these same guys who talk about this and like, Beef, like they have to participate in this, and I go all of a sudden I'm like, hey, I'm gonna take you through a battery, and then then show them. Oh my God, you are so weak at this. You're dysfunctional. Oh my God, I thought you were. You talk a lot about. You talk a big game. I thought you were so tough and athletic and well balanced, and you can't do this. You you're this bad at. Oh, you're you can't do you can't do pistol squats. You're dysfunctional. Oh. Why can't you do this? And Everyone's just, everyone. So it's just a money-making term used by the sports rehab. Well, it didn't start off that way, but it became that way. You know, it's like, what does dysfunctional even mean? You're, a lot of times they're just weak and uncoordinated, or they just need to stop doing a certain, they don't necessarily need corrective exercise. They need to stop doing that exercise for a while and heal. Because, you know, <laughs> I had a client that's like, I've had, it hurts when I deadlift. And so, you know, I went to physio and he helped me realize I'm dysfunctional. (laughs) And I have, you know, my core isn't, well, I have a weak core. and My core isn't firing properly. I'm like, how does he know you have a weak core? He could just tell. I'm like, did he take you through some exercises? No, but he just knows. And I'm like, so he could look at you and tell you have a weak core. Because I don't think you have a weak core. I think you have one of the strongest cores out of anyone I trained. Oh uh, yeah, but he says I'm dysfunctional and I need a lot of you know I need to come to him for the next like you know couple months so I can get my core firing properly, and he's gonna give me these dead bugs and bird dogs and side planks and you name it, and I'm like actually all you need to do is just don't deadlift for like two three weeks and then work back in slowly and don't and you you've been deadlifting twice a week hard, that's too much for a lot of people. I used to be able to do it in my twenties. In my young 30s, now I can't. If I try to deadlift twice a week now, it's snap city. I can't pull hard twice a week anymore. And that's that's a very individual thing based on your... On number one, your your anatomy and anthropometry and how you distribute stress based on your... I call it your lightning bolt. The way your, your, to, your torso, your femur, and your tibia. They form a lightning bolt from the side view if you plot them. So different people are going to stress their, their joints uniquely. If you have short femurs and uh, you can squat very upright, then you're not going to load the spine as much as the guy with really long femurs who has to have, you know, I've had some pe- some females that are all legs, and they can't, if you set them up where the bar is centered at their mid-feet and mid-scapula and, uh, you know, and they get into the proper position, their torso is almost horizontal. So they're going to have more low back loading. They're going to have more shear and compressive loading, and there's more torque loading on the spine. No way around it. So, and then there's also a big genetic element to soft tissue strength. Huge. So some people can some people are way more robust than others. And so this determines your exercise selection, your exercise frequency, your volume, your uh, uh, your effort, your 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 loads. All these things. How how heavy you should be going, how close to failure, how How many sets and reps you should do? How how, you know if you you, some people do best when they pull hard every other week, you know, and no one does that though. You don't see anyone prescribing deadlifts every other week. We like to do weekly programs where they pull every week. But anyway, a lot of time, a lot of the issues in strength and conditioning aren't don't require corrective exercise. They just require um, they require modifications in program design and also exercise. Like some people. I hear these strength coaches say like, oh, well, don't let them wear squat shoes or elevate their heels because that's a crutch. You need to be increasing their ankle dorsiflexion mobility. Not everyone can improve their dorsiflexion mobility. A lot of times it's anatomical and they need to be wearing squat shoes. And it's like you have them elevate their heels onto 10-pound plates and they're like, oh my God, this feels so good. Any logical person would conclude this is great. We're going to have them squat this way. And yep, you have to have these strength coaches that have to appear superior that say, no, that's a crutch. That's not the way you squat. You should squat barefoot and increase. Then, Okay, so what happens when you can't increase it? You don't just have like, you know, in, uh, there's other reasons why they, elevating the heels improves squat form and it makes people feel better when they squat. It's less joint stress. We should modify the technique, modify the variation. Some people have, you know, they can't, they can't squat with low bar, but if they do front squats or goblet squats or something, then they, they feel better when they do it. So let them do that. You know, We should be modifying the exercise and then altering program design to say, okay, they can – turns out most people can do rows all the time. Most people can push – you can push a sled every day. You can do certain posterior chain exercise all the time. Some people get super sore from single leg exercises. Some people not so much. Some people should do shouldn't go do heavy squats and deads, but every coach and personal trainer knows this. Who works with a lot of people, you end up individualizing all your clients. They don't, none of them do the same program. You individualize them all for everyone, but it's it's these coaches out there making bold black and white statements that drive me crazy. It's always I can always read what they say and know real quickly. They don't really train that many people because if they, I can think of all my clients and go. That wouldn't work for this person. That definitely wouldn't work for this person. This person it's true of, but, you know, they don't have all those trained males, females, old, young, fit, unfit, you know, all, all the different tall, short, you know, all the different um, possibilities out there. You've got to train a wide range of people to where you really have expertise
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and that's actually something that we were just talking about the last podcast I did, like just the the, the era of just being so black and white and overly reductionist and not um, not willing to look at, at individual cases. And, and bringing it back actually to the, the research with the, the hip thrusts, uh, I think that's so cool you had all those reasons laid out um, just because I think people – it's very easy for people to get reductionist uh, with those, like, like oh, here's a study that says Does it doesn't work. Well, clearly, you know, then throw out the other study and, and just make decisions based off a few things. So uh, specifically, too, I thought it was really cool how you um, like, and this is stuff I didn't really, really know. Uh, but it, it makes sense, like the idea that with the tempo, like, I mean, every time I've programmed the hip thrust just innately as a track coach, I'm just like, you'll be as explosive as you can on the way up. Like, (laughs) like it just makes sense. Right. And then, uh, as well as to like the, did, what were the athletes doing? Were they actually doing running? Were they doing sprinting? Um, and, and any, any study absent of that, like, like what and and uh you said it really well too. Uh like just RDLs and squats or any, any type of power lift, there's studies that have shown it makes no difference and there's studies that are shown it help. It's just context is king and people I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to look at that and it'll be interesting as more research comes out uh to see to see how that unfolds in, in the actual uh qualitative aspect or quantitative aspect, I should That's
0: say. That's why I wish I could always tell the haters, like, okay, so what would you have them do? Oh, oh. you included the row, the inverted row. Do you think that really – do you think if I I did an eight-week program of inverted rows, you would see agility, vertical jump, or sprint speed go up? No, you wouldn't. The people who think you would, you wouldn't. (laughs) The (laughs) row is not that important. But we do in strength and conditioning because we want to keep their shoulders healthy, and it's just – it's like you've got an hour with these guys. You can fit in a lot in an hour. You know, what are you just going to use – 13 minutes based on studies that showed in the research like squats and Olympic lifts and get them out of there in 12 minutes no the you know you're gonna throw in more exercises and be more well-rounded and uh you know I'm not saying deter from their get a kick their butt but you get a lot of filler exercise and then that you know, some athletes it rep- it may it does wonders with them some athletes once they start doing rowing more their shoulders feel better and they're and there, you get the client, you get the athlete out of pain. We don't just improve performance; we also increase their longevity. So a lot of these exercises we do to keep them healthy over the years.
1: You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, you, you said something about this too. Uh, back when you're talking about the hip thrusts and the studies and the adolescents it worked for, and then the college athletes, uh, you know, in those studies not so much. But like this is kind of this is one of the way the wheels were turning in my head. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on this. But like the idea of uh, if you're if the athlete isn't strong or specifically their glutes aren't very strong or there isn't like a high firing rate in their glutes, you know, the intermuscular coordination in their posterior chain, um, you know, and that athlete uses hip thrust and they kind of get up to speed with their like glute function and strength. And then maybe they're, they get to a point where it won't be as helpful or maybe you switch to a different way of doing it or something like that. Uh, do you think that that, uh, what's your thoughts on that type of idea?
0: Yeah, I could see that like, you know, the hip thrust being more important earlier on because it's effective at building glute mass. And, um, you know, sometimes you see athletes, like, I just watched UFC this last weekend. And it's Francis Ngano, or whatever his name is, uh, he's got the biggest glutes, and he swings. He's, he hits like a ton of bricks. Uh, he got beat by steep in the kick, but either way, the guy is this, easily the scariest fighter of all time. He's got these giant glutes, and he hits so darn hard. So you could say, like, oh, my God, look at all these athletes athletes they all have these big muscular glutes the glutes are so important but you can also find athletes that are amazing that don't have big glutes from all sports so i don't like t- making people feel bad about their glutes you know you could look at anderson silva back in the day he was a great fighter he didn't have glutes uh you can look at certain sprinters don't have much glutes yeah you could say look at look at tyson gay's glutes they're huge but you can also find sprinters that don't have the biggest glutes it's it's just one muscle Also, you can have a real compact, strong glute without it being huge. Um, But uh, I could see it being more important early on for development, like to develop glute mass. You know, like if you can develop that with high school athletes quicker and then get them to where they have the mass to work with now, that could be – that's that's a plausible theory. Um, But then I could also say, like, what if you had a guy who – see, I've trained these people who – uh, so when I was in New Zealand, there was a CrossFit uh, box owner. And uh, I, I went to – I said, hey, I don't want to do CrossFit, but I love training at your gym. It was, it was literally one block away from me. And I said, can I have a key? And he's like, you can if you train me three times. I said, "And you can have the key. And you, just, you can train here, just not when I have classes. I said, okay, deal. So I trained there at night. I loved it. But he was this big, muscular dude from Zimbabwe. And he was so fit and muscular. And I think he squatted like like 455 or 495 and deadlifted like 495 and um, big legs. And so, you know, I knew how much he could squat and deadlift. So I, I teach him how to do hip glute bridges. We started with glute bridges and I put 135 on the bar. He could not lift it off the ground. Couldn't do a 135-pound glute bridge. He couldn't raise the bar off the ground. So I said, oh, okay. Uh, let me let me try body weight the way he did it like he lifted his hips off the ground he he gets to lockout and was shaking and so I had him do like four sets of five and he was like shaking then I taught him how to do back extensions off the glute ham developer reach lock same thing so I said you're really weak at these for now like I'm like you have a discrepancy in your you have very strong glutes look at them they're huge Big old quads, big hamstrings. You have very big muscles, but your range—it's range-specific strength. So I'm like, you do have strong glutes in the flex position, but they're weak at end-range hip extension. So do these every day, and you'll, your your strength will catapult. So I just said, do like four sets of five on you know body weight, and then increase it each week. And then, and I, I told him to do whatever for back extensions, maybe like two sets of ten or something, and increase it gradually. So, in one week of adding those, or sorry, one month of adding those in, this guy's deadlift went up 60 pounds just from adding those in. So, that's a scenario when you hear people go, oh, these don't transfer to this. And it's like, well, what if you have very weak end range hip extension strength? You throw those in there, they work wonders. Well, what if you have a sprinter who has very weak? So, it might be, so like JV Morin's research looks at force velocity imbalances. What if you just have a, an imbalance in your flex versus extended range throughout the, the hip extension torque angle curve, an imbalance throughout that curve that it doesn't match the common curve? Now, people are two and a half times stronger when you test them on an isokinetic dynamometer. When you test them at, in a flexed range, deep flexion, hip flexion, they're two and a half times stronger than you are at end range. But this guy was probably like six times stronger. You know, He had like no end range and all flex range. So it could be like, so if you had a sprinter who's like that, I don't know how he could be a sprint because I've found sprinters tend to have stronger glutes at end range hip extension, probably due to specific their sports, they're propelling themselves into terminal hip extension you know, on the ground. But maybe you'd have a scenario like that where the hip thrust could be amazingly beneficial, and maybe you have scenarios where it's not beneficial, but maybe you need to do explosive hip thrust, but again at that elite level when you're at the top strength doesn't do as much so it's like you get more of your benefit from specificity but even then so, you know you look at a lot of these sprinters and you're like you know you train them for four years and they didn't get better so quit shooting down everyone's methods if you're not consistently at that that stage it's so random you can't predict you know Whatever got saying Bolt the fastest and he peaked in Beijing and never got faster. So everything he did after that was not, you know, the, 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 they did weights, they did sled, they did sprinting, but sprinting is a unique beast of its own. I love studying it, I love thinking about it, but we can't just look at sprinters. we got to look at high school athletes, football players, people you need to be strong and powerful at all, all ends of the force velocity spectrum in every direction. They need to be able to go up, down, left, right, forward, back. You know, explosive and strong because they might have an opponent on top of them. They need to push a guy forward and be powerful. Sorry, force high force. They need to maybe need to have a guy on top of them that are kind of in a lunge position, picking up. And then they need to be able to throw and swing and cut and sprint and decelerate and jump and you know it's. It, that's where it's more exciting to me. We need to develop very explosive and strong athletes. You know, they don't tend to run. They tend to re- reach top speed at 22 meters or something like that instead of at, at 60 or uh, 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 in the case of Usain Bolt. So we all need to learn from all the different sports if we're to be the best best straight coaches possible.
1: Oh, I totally agree. And I bet that guy, um, I bet he was probably really the guy with the low end to, uh, hip extension uh, glutes but his, he couldn't get the end range i bet he was probably like pretty good at five yards but after that he probably was no good like you know like yeah. specific to how he moved it's it's just really interesting
0: but then i've also trained guys who well i had a, a guy visit me he's a, a bodybuilding coach well but he trains mostly bikini competitors he's in florida and he's like, Brett, I don't, I've never, no, to be honest, I've never done a hip thrust. My glutes take over and everything. I have these huge glutes just from squatting and deadlifting. And his first time he ever did hip thrust, he did 405 for six reps, really perfect form too. And it's like, gosh, and if he did them for six months, he'd be using, you know, seven, eight hundred pounds. <laughs> but <laughs> there's other, and then you have guys who do them the first time and they have to use body weight because they can't lift 135. It's crazy this discrepancy with hip thrust strength.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. Uh, well, hey, I, I, I think that's about the, actually the end of the time uh, I got for the episode today. But uh, it was awesome just hear you unplug and just share your thoughts uh, and everything that you've I gone.
0: That this to 20 for you. You didn't even send me any questions beforehand. I had it ready to go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that thing, that thing was serious. But it's really awesome to hear that because it just gives you such a good insight. And you, you look at a study and you're like, okay, like – Here's all these factors, and I think that's so cool you put that together.
0: Well, yeah, we end up talking about hip thrust the whole time. we got to come back in six months or whatever and do another and talk about other stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm excited to do that again, and we'll get to everything else. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. But for now, too, that just gives me so many good things to think about with those studies that did come out and – uh your approach to that and you know the low and end range glute torque uh, that's just such a cool thing too and so the thanks for your time today Brad I really appreciate it Thank you Joel That does it for another episode of the Just Fly Performance podcast and it was awesome having Brad on I always learn so much when he's on the show so hopefully it won't be too long till we get him back on again And we'll be back next week with another great guest. In the meantime, if you like the episode podcast, this series, what we're doing, don't hesitate to drop us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. I really appreciate it. Also, visit our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. We'll see you guys next week.